This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Pierre Delance. Museums and art institutions have come under a great deal of pressure of late. Not only are they experiencing waning state support and forced entrepreneurialism, they are also receiving increased criticism from the inside. Artists and art workers have taken to calling out the failings of the institution, staging protests and boycotts. Can the museum serve the public if, as we are told, it continues to abuse its staff? Can the art institution change the world if it is unable to put its own house in order? My guest today proposes that these developments can be linked directly to the canon of institutional critique. In After Institutions, Karen Archie expands the definition of institutional critique to develop a broader understanding of contemporary art sociopolitical entanglements, looking beyond what cultural institutions were, to what they are, and what they might become. After institutions began as a curatorial research project for an exhibition planned for the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam, where Karen is a curator. I'm very happy that she joins me now. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Karen, I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, your book from its title proposes that we are at a moment where we have to think about the future of institutions to the extent that we're talking about the future of institutions after institutions. But before we get to any of this, how is it that you came to write this particular essay? Yeah, thank you. Um, I would say that my interest in institutional critique you know, has a very long history. I wrote my mm. thesis in undergrad, actually, on... Both there's in Documenta 12, which was quite panned mm-hmm. in the press for being a very kind of heavy curatorial gesture. And ever since then, I'd thought a lot about how institutions support artistic practices and how they can also sometimes overtake artistic practices and also the relationship of these two with the public and also public responsibility. Mm-hmm. And over the course of the last seven, eight years or so, I've been writing a lot of texts about health mm. and healthcare. And um, that was inspired, I guess, through some health problems that I'd had myself and was thinking through what it means to be able to work in the context of the art world, um, which really necessitates a very high output, especially from writers, to be able to make a living um, and also from artists. And I kind of felt like that in terms of a set of ethics, didn't jive with how the art world perceives itself. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. all of these interests kind of came together during a dinner that I write about in the book uh, with Joseph Grigley, Luke Willis Thompson, and also previous conversations with the artist Carolyn Lazard. And they were all speaking about their own struggles with health or care or um, being able to just work productively in the art world. And then also their interest in institutional critique and how all of them find a lot of inspiration in that uh, canon. And I began to think about, okay, but what does it mean actually to work in the vein of institutional critique today? Because it doesn't feel like socially a very relevant, you know, canon anymore because it has a very specific aesthetic to it. And so I began researching and you know, thinking back to my own interest in institutional critique, pitched this exhibition after institutions. And then, you know, this was all during very turbulent changes at the Stadelic in which, you know, our director resigned. And then we had a intermittent 
directorship and then a new director and then COVID. And it just didn't survive all of those changes. Mm-hmm. And Aaron Bogart from Floating Opera Press at some point asked me if I wanted to turn an idea into a book. And I said, yes. All right. Well, that sounds nice and simple, but I think it's pertinent to to remember as we go further that this is a book about a project that didn't take place. And I think that might cast a shadow over the entire idea of institutional critique as we, as we, as we go and historicize it. But I want to start with maybe a slightly disarming but very basic question. What is an institution in the context of institutional critique? How do we think about art institutions now? in the way that gives them the kind of relevance that makes them important outside of the art world? I think I'll answer that in two different ways. One is that there's a kind of literal definition of the word institution, and that can be, you know, a state-funded organization that is meant to support the public, you know, in a very, very broad sense. And then there's also the kind of term institution, which would mean the thing that has such an incredible presence in society that it is an institution, like a person mm-hmm. can be an institution, a podcast can be an institution. So a kind of more almost metaphorical usage of that term, which I think is really important. And I've had a lot of questions in response to the book in terms of what an institution can be, how small mm-hmm. it can be. Can you create an institution yourself? And then secondly, the object of inquiry for the book went from being the art institution, which is one of the objects of inquiry within institutional critique, to institutions in a broader sense. So including uh, a more broad uh, definition of state institutions and mm-hmm. thinking about their relationship with the economy and how they're functioning right now across generally the West. Hmm. So I think one of the things that comes out of this is that an institution is fundamentally um, an apparatus, a technology for reproducing certain values, certain social values. And I think that's, that's a central question that gives rise to a practice of institutional critique, which is what you try to canonize and try to explore in the book. So maybe for those listeners who, who haven't, come across um, the canon of institutional critique, we might start with outlining the historical context and maybe start in the 1960s. Yeah, this is this is really difficult to sum up in a few sentences just because the practices during this time were very, very heterogeneous and um, there was not a kind of common understanding or shared goal mm. between the artists that were working at the time. Um, and it was only in the 90s that the term was actually coined. Um, so this is kind of a retroactive uh, framework mm-hmm. that uh, you can kind of impose upon these artists. But what I think is a really good example of institutional critique is uh, Lawrence Wiener's uh, removal pieces. I'll put a link to, to, to an image of this work in the show notes for listeners. Within this piece, he's really simply re- removing a square of a rug from a gallery space and then putting it on the wall. And what the artists of this period were thinking through is how can we kind of not add any sort of visual representation into the gallery because it is incredibly commodifiable and how can you push against the commodification of the art object and, um, uh, basically create a relationship with the art architecture of the space, but then not necessarily create something that can be placed within the realm of uh, visual representation. So uh, Lawrence Wiener's piece is a prototypical example of this because he's taking something from the gallery space that already exists and then just placing it on a different in a different part of the gallery. So he's taking the rug from the floor and putting it on the wall, in that he's calling attention to how artworks work in the space as well, the kind of idea that it has a relationship to its container, to um, the building, to also pointing toward even more to the outside world and the outside forces that would give shape to, um, you know, how the gallery functions financially, economically, socially. Um, So it's a very first very formal attempt to reach outside of that. So this is, 
you know, coming from this offshoot of conceptual art in the late 60s. So I think that that relationship actually between what has now been canonized as the prototypes, as the first works of institutional critique and conceptual art is quite important. So as you highlighted, one of the characteristics that we note here is the resistance to commodification of the art object, which I think to, to anyone who who comes from outside of art is already slightly counterintuitive. How do these two sets of ideas come together? Yeah, so in the book, I kind of trace this trajectory of artists thinking through how you pare down the art object to an idea. Um, how do you take away the object status of the work to a realm of pure visual ideas? And this is also where the trajectory uh, went toward with institutional critique. And, you know, within Buclo's essay, um, The Aesthetics of Administration, he's thinking very much between how textual this kind of first generation was uh, with Kossuth and um, Bachner um, thinking through how ideas are expressed through, you know, a visual apparatus, a textual apparatus, and other forms of representation, um, which is really the kind of core project of conceptual art. And then the difference for institutional critique would be that it is more thinking through also the space within which it is installed. Um, mm. So I would I would say that that's a quite core difference. And then um, very much influenced by this idea of paring down um, an art object or an artistic work down to its very core of an idea. And this is, of course, very different from, you know, works that, you know, were, were based in painting or minimalism or, um, you know, works that were much more object-based. You know, in the book, I write about this trajectory from Duchamp that's you know, begins to inspire this as early as the, you know, from the 1910s, you know, thinking through artwork is not necessarily something that could be appreciated by a connoisseur, um, but mm -hmm. would have a different kind of uh, relationship to quality. And what's happening within the institution at that time? Because I think, I think it's quite, quite often easy to get carried away with the artist's demands on on the viewer and on the surroundings and therefore the institution, but actually not, not understand what's happening to the museum, to the gallery themselves. So in the 1960s, capitalism is rampant. I think we've forgotten the long shadow of the Second World War by, by then. And I guess in the US context, at least, we could expect that institutions are getting very close to the market if they've, if they've ever got themselves removed, removed from it. So, so maybe, maybe I can ask you to, to talk us through a little bit some of those developments. Well, I would say that in the 1960s, the institution or the museum is seen as having an almost ultimate power in being able to create the careers and markets for artists. And they're, you know, they were seen as kind of a very, maybe still are, seen as a very um, one-directional Course, in the sense that museums don't really take a lot of feedback. And then the definition of the institution that a lot of these artists are using within the first wave of institutional critique um, is thinking about the physical space of the institution, um, the brick and mortar museum, um, and somewhat metaphorically, its inner workings and, and outer workings uh, in relationship to um, broader society. Mm. Okay, well, let's speed through the, the next wave of, of institutional <laughs> critique, which is when the term actually comes in. Um, you cite the artist Greg Horowitz, who I'm going to paraphrase here, who describes his attitude to the first wave of institutional critique with the phrase, I have no more questions to ask of gallery walls, which signals the change of the, in the interest of artists practicing forms of institutional critique from the actual space, from the actual environment of the gallery, to maybe the museum's slightly more socially external function. And I guess the most famous exponent of institutional critique that I think probably even as the person who, who coins the term is the artist Andrea Fraser. So we're thinking about the 90s and the early 2000s. And then again, a generation of artists who is all, you also centered around New York, 
how is that division between the first and the second wave useful? What what changes? A lot changes in those uh, in that period, and I think that that quote by Greg Bordowitz is is really fantastic because it showcases the kind of radical attitude that a lot of the artists from the second wave felt. And of course, this is happening in the late 80s and early 90s during the height of the AIDS crisis. So uh, Greg Bordowitz and other practitioners like Zoe Leonard are part of Diva TV, which is an offshoot group of um, ACT UP. And what I find interesting about that is that they're, they have parallel practices. Greg and Zoe were activists. And then also, you know, James Meyer writes this about this and um, what happened to the institutional critique. But the, the parallel practices that this group had were really important. Mark Diane was also a professor. Andrea Fraser is currently a professor as well. Mm-hmm. But the main focus of this group was to look back through the genealogy of the institution to understand where it was at that period historically. So this group also had a very important, they were socially connected and they had a very important mentor, Craig Owens, and also a lot of friends who were afflicted by AIDS. And their most crucial um, question, I think, in their work was to think through how an institution such as the healthcare system in the West could fail them so profoundly and what kind of answer they could have within it with their work. And to do that, they were looking back um, to a more broad definition of the institution and its genesis. Well, I think that's the point where things really start getting interesting. And I, I slightly suspect when you start getting into real, real trouble. I mean, read, reading your book and, and also knowing some of this history, I repeatedly in the margin kept, kept on writing, why is the museum a good place to try to deal with healthcare? And healthcare is a recurring theme in in at least a selection of works that you pick up on, but but it would be wrong to deny that the AIDS crisis didn't feature in the New York art scene to, to a great extent. What is the logic by which the museum is the right place in which to discuss the failure of the welfare state? This is something that's happening for the first time in this kind of network post, you know, post-Gutenberg galaxy world in which the experience of a health crisis is global. Why does the museum become a site for thinking about it? I mean, I think it, it is one site, right? So if you look at the practices of Bordowitz and Leonard again, you know, those are people who were activists at the same time as they were artists. And I think that for me, I actually learn the most, I think, about life through aesthetic experience. And I'm able to reflect the most about my position, my life, the world at large through the works of artists who kind of push me to think through these things. And, you know, I remember the first work that I saw, you know, that moved me to think through the, the abortion debate. It was a Dwayne Hansen mm-hmm. work that I saw on vacation in Florida, I think in 1994. Um, so I was probably about nine years old. And it was a work a life-size replica of a baby that had been thrown into a trash can. And it was about the restriction of abortion rights. Um, so it was a deeply pro-choice work. And I, it got my brain thinking, like, why would this baby be in a trash can? Who's doing that? And, and why? And what are the conditions that produce this? And as a nine-year-old, that was an extremely formative experience for me. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, it's that I deeply believe in the transformative ability of a an aesthetic experience. I think that aesthetic experience is also something maybe that we need to define, especially in terms of institutional yeah. critique, because institutional critique is known as being a lot of reading. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Andrea, I, I spoke about this with Andrea Fraser. Um, you know, what aesthetic experience necessarily entails. And I think especially because when I was preparing this exhibition, someone on the curatorial team or management said, yeah, but it's an exhibition of institutional critique. We don't want to be reading all day. Mm. And um, Andrea made the point that a cognitive experience is also an aesthetic experience. So I think that that's an interesting kind of addition to this discussion that um, 
certain works that are based on reading can also be extremely transformative as well. Mm. And in the context of a large public driven institution. I think, I think we, we've already got to a, what is at least for me a key point in defining the role of the institution for the 21st century and thinking about where things might have gone wrong and how they might be rescued. So you highlight in the book um, Andrea Fraser's um, slight unease with the first wave of institutional critique, which through its proximity to conceptual art has certain anti-aesthetic qualities. I mean, that's a to a certain extent, an oversimplification. But I think Andrea Fraser might have had a, a point in as much as she actually has predicted a little bit of the aftermath of institutional critique. So in as much as we have now completely embraced the expectation that the institution, the museum, the contemporary art gallery, is now completely imbued and charged with a very expansive social mission. So in as much I completely appreciate the discussion in which various forms of cognition can be seen as aesthetic and are completely therefore at home within an art institution. There are aspects of just sheer forward kind of copy and paste representation that I think a lot of institutions are completely guilty of. And I wonder if Andrea Fraser wouldn't have already in the 90s asked quite sharp questions. It's interesting. So what, what would you say that those processes are? I mean, at the fundamental level, I asked what it is that, that an artist brings to anyone but themselves by being inserted into processes that they don't belong to. So what, what is the utility of an art institution paying, not very well, but paying something above minimum wage for an artist to go and spend, say, six months popping in and out of community groups in a suburb, working with either people who have health problems or are disadvantaged economically and so on and so on. I think what we have seen over the last 20 years is a confusion of institutional critique with what we call social practice. Yeah. So the very remit of what it is that a museum is for has completely been turned upside down to the cost of any aesthetic mission. I totally agree, actually. I, I, I don't really touch social practice in this book but I don't consider social practice really part of institutional critique or any kind of contemporary definition of institutional critique. And Andrea Fraser has really interesting thoughts on social practice, but she doesn't use those specific words. I think that her point is that institutional critique is site-specific within the institution, and it doesn't, it actually is located in, a, in and around the field of our activity of artists. So mm -hmm. that means that social practice, which is happening, you know, outside the primary field of activity for institutions and artists is not really applicable within the sphere of institutional critique. And what I find interesting about her thoughts, and I tried to drive home throughout the book, is that the practice of creating exhibitions, the practice of collecting work, working with artists and curators, that is a material practice. It does mm -hmm. have actually very deep effects. And, you know, I write the whole introduction about a kind of setting up the economic framework for where we are right now and, you know, how we're functioning under neoliberalism. My point is that um, the way in which we experience a kind of financial reality, social realities is the same way that someone would outside, like let's say the the sick patient being visited by an artist. So what I'm interested in actually is how the artist is being paid, not necessarily that they're going to see the sick patient. Does that make sense? It makes sense, but I'm afraid this is the point at which I, I take, <laughs> I'm in great disagreement with with you of how useful for either the art world or the world at large persisting with that question is. But maybe we'll get to that in a moment. I'll leave you on tenterhooks now because I want to, to make sure that halfway through in our conversation, you deliver your proposal for, for where it is. Because even though this book is essentially an essay for an exhibition that didn't happen and it does a fantastic job of kind of historicizing where we've got to, you, you do a couple of things. One is you begin the process of creating a canon for the third wave of institutional critique, 
but you also make a proposal for thinking about institutional critique in conceptual terms, which which you do by pairing the perspectives from Andrea Fraser and also from Minion Quan, where you bring essentially the idea that you just mentioned of a critically reflective side from Fraser with the idea of a discursive side from Quan. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of different things happening. So um, thinking through how artists are paid and thinking through, um, you know, these kind of material realities within um, artistic production and museum work. I actually experience this on a day-to-day basis and I see a huge need for it, you know, especially in uh, the United States, uh, the UK, because when you start thinking about the ethics of your own labor and how you relate to others in terms of, um, you know, basic ethical practices in terms of labor, you realize the interconnectedness of your work with that of the world around you. So I actually think it's a very uh, kind of important starting point for thinking through the interconnectedness of artistic practice and museum practice, you know, outside of itself. And then in terms of thinking through the kind of uh, theory of the discursive site, basically throughout the book, I'm kind of coming to terms with the various definitions of institutional critique and thinking, okay, is this actually something that is relevant today? And the core question that I had is, is the theory of the anti-aesthetic strategy still relevant? Um, And essentially, uh, Fraser, you know, thinks that the anti-aesthetic strategy is probably the most important aspect of institutional critique. And I'll back up and explain what the Mm anti-aesthetic strategy is. This is something that originated in conceptual art and and the first wave of institutional critique um, to basically pair away visual representation again, as I mentioned before, so that the art object, you know, function more in terms of in, in terms of the realm of ideas um, and this is also something that was continued supposedly through the second wave through documentary practices but I in the book you know ha- cast some doubt on what exactly that means because I don't think necessarily that um, the second wave you know artists you know Fraser herself was making video material. You know, these are not super easily commodifiable practices, you know, in terms of them being video or performance, um, but they are commodifiable nonetheless, and they all um, have enjoyed great careers um, <laughs> and, and received awards and funding and et cetera through, through these practices. So to me, I wanted to call into question, to what extent is this a valid criteria for institutional critique? Mm. Um, especially when I have seen so many artists coming from backgrounds that don't include this kind of Whitney ISP, uh, Whitney Independent Studio Program uh, upbringing. And I I do come from that training. Like I I studied under Mark Dion, Greg Bordowitz. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I very much belong to this kind of tradition of conceptual art. Um, So it's ingrained in me. But I see a lot of artists working with a more expanded dish, uh, definition of institutional critique that is actually fundamentally object-based. So oh. this is also something I write about for the New Museum Triennial. What does it mean to not employ an anti-aesthetic strategy, but then still practice institutional critique? Is it called institutional critique or is it something different? I would give an example here of a work that I think is relevant. Um, I forget the name of the artist, um, but she was in the New Museum Triennial and she was making drawings, very pared down drawings of the commuting route for all of the employees at the New Museum. Mm -hmm. And you could tell by how long and circuitous the um, commute was. You know, it's basically a map with like Mm -hmm. a line um, and the longer the line, the longer the commute, the lower the status of the employee in the institution. So these are works on paper, you know, kind of beautiful in their minimalism, but they certainly, it's it's certainly not a documentary or performance. Um, you know, it's it's a very 
commodifiable work. And I think it goes to the heart of thinking through issues of equality within the institution and to not to fundamentally not be able to even think through whether or not this is institutional critique for me felt like, okay, maybe we need to think about updating, updating this criteria. So again, this is where the idea of discursive sites came in through Miwan um, Kwan and thinking through how um, important it is to um, locate a site in its discursivity or like a, a certain issue mm -hmm. rather than necessarily, let's say, the architectural environment that the work exists in. So there were a few updates that I wanted to make to this definition. And interestingly, I, I had a long interview with Andrea in which she really does think that the anti-aesthetic strategy is very, very important. And I think that she does have a point to some extent, but her her point is that when you give into easily participating in the art market, you also accept working under the conditions of capitalism and you're supporting the conditions of capitalism. You know, she was very that that whole group was very disappointed. And for example, Barbara Kruger, other artists that might seem critical, working with big galleries that also represent mm. artists like David Sally. And I think it's the holistic vision of thinking through how do you work or try to envision a life outside of capitalism that they were really interested in. And my point is that I can't, you know, and I use this Mark Fisher quote, mm -hmm. quote, it's easier to envision the end of the world than it is to envision <laughs> the end of capitalism. So um, I see a lot of artists working through objects, working through a actually purely visual aesthetic experience. Mm. Um, well, that is also, of course, still cognitive. Um, but I thought it was interesting to try to update that and work through her frameworks and see what I thought was still relevant today. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Hmm. But something, something troubles me a little bit in this proposal for a new definition and the return of the aesthetics. But you mentioned the new museum, and the new museum is a site of a couple of labor disputes that, that become interesting in the context of trying to turn towards the management structures of the institution and its economic realities. So Hans Hacker, one of the fathers of institution critique, had a retrospective uh, in 2019 but what was interesting surrounding the exhibition is that was a moment when the new museum was trying to unionize itself or yeah. was, at the very least, the workers wanted to go on strike. And the thing to, to record here is that Hans Hacker refused to support the strike until after his own opening. So he didn't want to put the spanner in the works for fear of upsetting his opening party. Now, that's an indictment maybe of Hans Hacker himself. But it's also indicative of where it is that certain aspects of the more direct bits of institutional critique, when the institutional critique directly talks to its own institution from within it, take place. So we, we're kind of in a place where it no longer is quite clear who acts in some of these movements. How, how should we account for that? Because we, we, we're slipping from what we used to think was the most important aspect of the institution, that was the artist. We now have this kind of catch-all term of art worker. And, and that's difficult to, to deal with from any kind of organizational theory point of view. But it's also very difficult for capital to deal with because, you know, we used to have, you know, the artist, God's representative on earth. And now, now we have to talk to the gallery invigilator about what the museum is about. I think there's... A lot of different facts that you could consider in this whole constellation. I mean, I, I would also make one correction in the sense that mm -hmm. there was no strike. So, that, like, basically, I think that they had managed to unionize without striking, but it was just the conversation that was um, 
kind of brought to the fore by Dana Koppel, who was the union organizer um, mm-hmm. uh, and the editor of New Museum. And then in the book, I talk through my own experience with Haka, which was, you know, it, it's very surprising to me that he would, you know, not support the strike and very disappointing naturally, but um, not in line with his previous work and also mm. how he treated me as a curator, um, which wasn't bad, but certainly not. He, it's not like he was an easy person to work with that, you know, was like overly pleasing in terms of institutional schedules. And, you know, there are certain artists that are very easy to work with because they understand mm. how to operate smoothly within institutional structures. And I wouldn't say that he's one of them. So, um, yeah, and, that was. A- and and you don't and you don't acknowledge that this could have been part of his institutional critique <laughs> becoming so difficult as to be ungovernable. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being mildly facetious here. I mean, I, I have worked with difficult artists myself many times. I, I know what it's like to an extent. But sometimes one wonders whether this is a method. No, I think that's part of it. It's definitely mm. part of it. You know, I think that he specifically thinks of himself as having an autonomous position from the institution and when i invited him for after institutions he he also was like i don't understand why you want to show this con- a condensation cube what does that have to do with institutional critique and of course it's mm. widely considered to be one of the most yeah. important proto institutional critique works that exist but <laughs> okay um and and he does know it of course <laughs> and um mm. But there was also, we wanted to do an updated visitor poll with him. And he um, really was thinking through what it meant to update the visitor poll for the Dutch landscape Mm. and specifically wanted to do weeks and weeks of research, uh, reading Dutch newspapers, getting back into the Dutch context. Um, Also, you know, pointed toward a work that was in the collection of the Van Abbe Museum that um, hadn't been shown for a very long time that would probably, yeah, that he was kind of concerned that would have some political implications of pulling that out because it was about the relationship of um, Philips, a Dutch company mm. or corporation uh, with apartheid. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, you know, I I didn't experience him to be, you know, a kind of easy artist and i think that that is definitely a part of his politics and mm. so hearing about this i mean i guess maybe there's a difference also in wanting your party <laughs> you know like, <laughs> like yeah, where does everybody that... wants a party but i guess that, that's that's an, an important thing to to remark on andrea fraser one of the things that she's most famous for is in an essay trying to define institutional critique just as it was fading out of focus in the in the mid 2000s she highlighted the fact that we are always already implicated it is impossible for an artist working within the institution to critique the institution without essentially being incentivized to spur themselves some of the critique and maybe this is where the distinction between the artist the person who supposedly gets all the glamour even if as you highlight in the book they might not be getting paid all that much or or the, the, the conditions might not be favorable. In the end, the artist is rewarded to be complicit with the institution. And maybe, maybe that's a moment for me to, to ask the big question, the, the, the point at which I draw a different conclusion from our thinking about institutions. I would propose that art institutions, in part through the, through the expansion of the remit, I think that art institutions have been guilty of massive overreach to the extent that they have placed their tentacles in just about every aspect of social life and have claimed some kind of control but not taken responsibility for what they do there. And because cultural institutions continue to be the site which reproduces social legitimacy, even if they become very weak at kind of propagating these ideas through aesthetic means, they still have an important role for a certain social class in reproducing social norms. My contention is that we've reached a point at which institutions are so deeply entrenched in replicating neoliberal norms that they actually reproduce the impossibility, they reaffirm the impossibility of 
getting out of those conditions. So as with Mark Fisher, it is easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the closing of a museum. And I'm, and I'm wondering what happens at the end of the institution, what happens after institutions. That's, that's essentially the, the thing that your, your, your book takes us towards. What alternatives to the institution you might, you might see, or in fact, whether you see any of these problems that I've just highlighted are, are indeed, as I believe, almost terminal. That's a very interesting set of questions. Um, and I, I don't disagree with you. I think that my, my read is in definition of expanding the definition of institution is maybe slightly different because mm-hmm. I don't think that artists should be going to do, you know, certain kinds of work outside of their training, you know, or outside mm-hmm. of their knowledge base or experience level. I, I very much agree with that, that that's a kind of silly practice to be perfectly honest. It's more that um, I'm trying to push the definition of institutional critique toward a more broad understanding, um, not just limiting it to the art institution, but also thinking through how institutions are part of a kind of broader constellation that help people live a healthy and fulfilling life to be able to produce artwork, to be able to participate in society in a productive way. And um, so it's, it's maybe a slight nuance there. And I would also point to um, the title again, After Institutions, Hmm. having a duality of meanings. So there's also the wordplay on the fact that after could mean in the style of. And that's very intentional in the title that it's not just thinking about a time after institutions, but also in the vein of institutions. And and what does it mean to work within um, the frameworks that we have and also potentially envision a different future for them. So we started this conversation with a private chat about what I'm doing in the summer months uh, that wasn't didn't make it to the podcast. But mm-hmm. um, and I'm talking about how much administration I'm doing to just kind of keep the collection um, up to date and going mm-hmm. at the Stadelic. And I think that that's you know one of my hurdles as an institutional curator for an art museum that collects, um, to be able to think beyond that for me is really difficult because I take the care of artwork so seriously. So I Mm. do believe that there is a um, place for the care of art objects within art organizations that I very, very much believe in. I think for me, thinking through um, what I see you know, at the institutions I've worked at in terms of governance structures, boards, funding structures, I mean, it's just overwhelmingly badly produced. I mean, it's just, (laughs) you know, people who are on boards have no idea what the day-to-day functioning of an institution should be. They don't understand what curators do sometimes um, or how artists make work or, um, you know, the the funding structures at most institutions produce bizarre effects like naming bathrooms and elevators after patrons. And, you know, it's just it where we are right now is creating so many silly issues, ethical issues. You know, it's just such a bizarre time right now for institutions that I do think it's very healthy to imagine a complete reinvestigation of, of what this could be. We're also seeing, for example, a lot of uh, collective leadership in institutions and also in biennials. Um, mm. Thinking, you know, collectively is also something that I find really interesting in terms of kind of shared leadership. Hito Steyl wrote an essay for this book um, um, edited oh. by, I'm just going to pack I think I know. Red cover. Yeah, the red cover yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but so she she wrote this essay about how we're not going to go like one of the the side comments was that okay well we're in a really sticky situation with the you know the neoliberal institution and the supporting the gig economy but we're not going to go back to some sort of fortis lifestyle where we all can work in institutions and get paid from you know nine to five and live happy and mm-hmm. fulfilling lives like history doesn't necessarily go backwards um, so what is it going to look like? And 
I think that that's one of the goals of the book is to open up that conversation of like, what do we want from institutions? Do we still want them? Can we save them? Um, Do we want to save them? Um, And for me, because I think I work at an institution, I really do want to save them. (laughs) And this is why I wrote this book to think through the material practices of how we work and also how that relates to exhibition making artistic practice Mm. and envisioning a better future for institutions. Okay. You know, just just as a way of comment, I actually really appreciate the fact that you have the discipline to, you know, not too begrudgingly spend your summer doing collection administration. I mean, that is objectively one of the things that an institution is designed to do. Since we invest, you know, still some public money into the, the, the collection of all these objects that are supposed to represent our cultural collectivity it is it is right that that these processes are given due care so we talked about the museum as a site as an apparatus for reproducing of social values and i'm interested in your thinking about whose social values it is that the museum should reproduce or the institution should reproduce and of course this is a bit of a catch 22 as a circular question because the definition of an institution to a certain effect is that it you know devalues themselves or the institution but we've seen a, a bunch of interesting contestations of that you, you listeners might know about the recent wholesale takeover of the contemporary art scene in poland for instance where institutions like the Ujazdowski center for contemporary art in warsaw have had the directorship the leadership changed forcibly by the government and the entire contemporary art scene of of the country is in great uproar that the state should dictate what the values of the institution are. And now while I have some sympathy with that, I also have sympathy with the state's desire to control the institution it funded and it funds to reproduce its values. So that shows the kind of nuance and the, the at some point countercultural role of the museum, but also the need for the museum to posture this kind of counterculturality so to an extent that the institution is a neoliberal the museum is a neoliberal institution it's it sort of still wants to be counter something so whose values does the museum reproduce i think that's it's interesting because i don't know if this was intentional but i feel like you've given a little bit of a historical chronology of how institutions fun- function because i would say in a pre-neoliberal moment hmm. institutions were much more an expression of the state. This is also yeah. um, very much the work of uh, Marcel Brodter is thinking about how mm. in Belgium institutions are art institutions and other institutions are very much uh, expressions of state ideology, um, whether or not it's very clear or not. And this is, of course, the reason why he founded his uh, museum and his apartment, the uh, Musée d'Art Moderne uh, Department of Eagles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a kind of uh, buffooning, uh, you know, uh, satirical institution that collected various uh, uh, state paraphernalia um, to point toward, uh, you know, the, the function of art is very much intertwined with the function of state expression. Um, but I think that as institutions have become more neoliberal more neoliberal and by that i mean actually specifically privately funded Mm. um of course the representation of values change um and then you know i think about the state like for example where you know i'm very much involved with the day-to-day functioning of the institution and i think about hmm okay how 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 would that work in my my day-to-day work you know how do i think about the values that i express in my exhibitions and i think it's a very complicated question if you think about it practically because i it's difficult to identify the moment in which that expression of value happens um i would say that um there's obviously a very felt need socially um, that has been communicated to museum directors that they need to be more inclusive, work on their um, you know equity initiatives, 
And that is certainly a value that is being expressed by institutions today. And the crux of the book that I've written is about how do we make sure that we balance that social need with actually acting um, through a set of values and ethics that are um, needed. Um, with that said, um, there are a lot of like holes you could poke in that argument. What are the values that are needed? What is, you know, what is at stake in terms of being socially progressive? You know, for me, when I look at the the collection of the Stadelic, um, there are like, you know, six to 8% women makers in the collection, which is just shocking. And, and I think that that's a value for me that goes without saying that uh, we need to fix that. So those are the kind of things that I'm thinking through um, in terms of values. Um, but yeah, does that answer your question or would you want to push yeah, a bit right. more on it? Well, I mean, if I wanted to push you, I would, I would probably go back to the example of the, the Polish institutional scene. So, and as much as the museum has become neoliberal, it has become also progressive and globalist because, of course, neoliberalism is not just the kind of evil flavor of capitalism that, that promotes atomization. I mean, progressive values stem quite directly from capital's efficiency in exploiting us one by one as opposed to in collectives. So the, the backlash against the, say, non-progressive or non-neoliberal Polish government at the moment is, is a very interesting moment where the institution kind of pushes back and it doesn't really know where to go because what may be happening if we have this kind of you know, Trumpian populist movement in, in the government, that's a, that's a rejection of those neoliberal values. So I think this is, this is the, the problem for the institution in trying to explain what its values are. To a certain extent, the, the thing that you describe in... Uh, redressing the the gender balance in the collection, which is you know, I couldn't couldn't think of a reason to argue with. Like, of course, this is something that should be happening. But from that perspective, we we also have to be able to critique the institution from understanding those kind of values and then doing pointless things like posting black squares on Instagrams and 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 doing performative change because actually that is retrenching into the neoliberal into the global. Um, one of the examples you had in the book, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to remember remember the names now, but you mentioned a Chinese artist for whom one of the aims of the contemporary um, institutional critique that they were practicing was the creation of further international opportunities for Chinese artists. And to a certain extent, that's a kind of catch-22, because a world in, in which those opportunities exist is also the world that reproduces the kind of dead end of the neoliberal institution. It's more globalization. It's, it's, it's more universal values for the entire world, which yeah. you know, we, we can't critique the, we can't critique the enlightenment projects, universalism, and then replace it with globalization of our own and claim that they're somehow much different. I think that, that institutions have such a wide sphere of activity that it's difficult to, speak about this uh generally it's at some point because mm. there is everything going on within the institution from posting these black squares to um redressing the you know kind of awful balance of gender in the institution and then you know what Liu Ding says in you know that he simply wants more opportunities for Chinese artists that also goes all the way back to education he's thinking mm. through Okay, he he can't speak English very successfully, like he understands English, but he sees that as um, an opportunity to be able to have a sense of collaboration with other artists, other curators, mm -hmm. um, you know, and and that's what he wants. He wants to be able to just be educated and have more tools to work with. Um, with that said, I think that. There is a catch-22 in the book where if you don't burn institutions down, you're essentially asking people to be invited into exploitation to some extent mm. because this is a fucked up place. Like institutions are fucked up. Like there's no way around it. Um, there's not always equitable treatment that is being, um, you know, can be promised by institutions. So 
um, what does it mean then to extend that collaboration to, for example, a Chinese artist who is otherwise working, you know, solely in Beijing because um, he has a, you know, limited amount of uh, resources in terms of language and funding, mm. et cetera. But yeah, I think that the core premise of the book is that field of arts is often is too often seen as a representational activity and not seen as a material activity. And I've, I've talked mm. about this a, a couple times in the interview. Um, and I, I've really noticed that from my daily practice as a curator, that, for example, we would do an exhibition on uh, sustainability, but then have 50 loans from around the world that we have mm. to create and ship in. Or <laughs> we have to, we're doing an exhibition or an event on accessibility, but then none of the elevators work in the institution. So, okay. or we don't have captioning for the talk um, on accessibility uh, so that the deaf people. <laughs> Uh, in the audience can't participate, so it's yeah, it's I, these kinds I, I, of. I, I feel bad for laughing, but I mean, these these, <laughs> these, these these questions are so obvious. I think I think we we must acknowledge that they are actually built into the logic of the institution. You would be surprised how much mm. people don't think about these things, and also mm. who who feel entitled to not think about them. And this is mm. the very you know definition of, of privilege that a lot of people are kind of operating under within institutions and it's not it i think that this is a worldwide phenomenon unfortunately mm. maybe to round up i could give you an opportunity to to actually name some names and describe a couple of practices of what you propose is the what you propose the third wave of institutional critique is. so you mentioned hitterstein who i think is widely acknowledged as as the world's foremost critical institutions, but maybe you could talk about some, some examples of practices that you think form the core of, of institutional critique today. What I was thinking about in terms of aesthetic experience that I haven't really wrote super a lot about in the book, and I haven't really spoken a lot about this, but the exhibition was also planned to be quite expansive in terms of its definition of institutional critique because I was interested in the viewer experience being, you know, almost like a story that's being told mm -hmm. throughout the exhibition. So one of the first works that you would see in the exhibition is this Mario Garcia Torres piece, uh, Preliminary Sketches for the Past and the Future, quote unquote, Salic Museum. And this is a slide-based piece that he made during the time that the Stadelic was closed from 2005 to 2012. And mm -hmm. in it, you see people in what looks like a ruin in the building of the Stadelic as it was being renovated, kind of jumping around. And I think that there's there's a term that he uses for the kind of performative element of his work, but it's like basically they're testing their bodies against the uh, the walls. I'll put I'll put a link to an an image online for for listeners. So I think that that work was meant to set the stage as, you know, we're kind of existing in a ruin right now. You know, mm. it's a very metaphorical work. Um, a lot of the works, and I I write a little bit about metaphor in the book and Sontag as well. Um, but it's supposed to help the viewer, and also not just art professionals, but you know, I was thinking about my parents or my cousins. How would they how would they relate to this content? How would they be able mm. to understand it? And I also thought about my ethical responsibility making an exhibition that can be um, understood by a public that doesn't necessarily have the um, education about conceptual art that this canon is rooted upon. So this is also how I got into these conversations with Andrea about the anti-aesthetic strategy and how mm -hmm. important it is um, in cognitive experience being aesthetic experience. Um, but so those are, those are, you know, some works that I was thinking of. Also, there's these uh, Isa Genskin uh, photographs from the State of the Collection that I was really interested in. They're titled Oa or Ear. Mm -hmm. And they're just these photographs, these very uh, cropped photographs of ears that are meant to, um, you know, she also has installed these ears um, outside of institutions to look as if they're 
life-size institutional ears to call to quest, into question what is the role of the institution? Is it meant to be this kind of entity in society that listens and uh, function as a membrane, like an ear between the public and society? So a lot of these works are metaphorical. There's also a work by Josh Klein that is not necessarily metaphorical, but it's explanatory in the sense that um, he has been making a lot of portraits of, you know, various people, for example, uh, people who have been laid off from their work because of automation or mm -hmm. automation. So, um, you know, people who are kind of left behind a society that are then 3D scanned and he places them in plastic bags, for example. Um, Eek. Yeah. <laughs> so it gives a mood, right? Like there are mm -hmm. a lot of moods uh, in, in the kind of exhibition version of after institutions. And then, you know, those are works that are very much, you know, more object oriented in their practice. But then there's, uh, you know, there are artists who actually went through the Whitney Independent Study Program, studied with people like Andrea Fraser and Greg Bordowitz and Mark Dion, um, such as Park MacArthur. And Park really mm -hmm. does work through the anti-aesthetic strategy. You know, I talked a little bit, I believe, in the book about her work, Ramps, um, in which she brings together um, like maybe 15 to 20 ramps that have been made for her um, to be able to um, enter into various arts organizations um, because she's a wheelchair user um, and she lays them on the floor in um, a kind of grid that would very much, you know, because it's a floor piece, it very much calls um, into mind the legacy of minimalism. Mm -hmm. And what I find so special about that work is that um, when you're thinking about minimalism, I immediately think about how the body is meant to be seen as a kind of universal um, standard. Yeah. So you're always standing at one height, you're always standing or you're always standing upright. Um, and there's certain things that um, Park's work pokes holes into the logic of minimalism in a way that I find really, really strong. And also in that work ramps, there's a Wikipedia link just written on the wall to, um, I believe, uh, Martha Russell, a uh, uh, disability act, uh, rights activist. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Park is, I think, maybe in her late 30s, early 40s. And, um, you know, she's very much someone that I would consider to be an institutional critique, a third wave institutional critique artist mm -hmm. working today, hands down, no question. She fits all the criteria. Um, you've, you've, you've got control. You wrote the book, Karen. You get to decide. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it's also interesting to think through who are the other artists that maybe don't so neatly fit all the boxes and what does it mean? And, you know, you asked also earlier, what does it mean when someone is enacting what feels like institutional critique from a non-artistic position? Hmm. And that to me is also an open question. Um, can I, as a curator, enact institutional critique? Um, and what is institutional critique if it's known by any other name? Um, one thing that I noticed in my research, you know, I, I spoke to various curators and museum directors, critics, about institutional critique in the last five years. And there was a kind of generational difference toward mm. opening or closing the canon. And a lot of the older people really felt strongly about institutional critique being a canon that happened at a certain moment. And that if there's a new canon um, or a new kind of movement inspired by institutional critique, it should have a different name. Mm. And also that like, but they're like, why would you want to be part of this? For me, I found that really interesting because there were artists that already laid the groundwork for mm -hmm. what's happening right now, um, who asked really important questions, you know, and I think that there's a lot of enrichment that can happen if you compare these practices in a chronology side by side. I, th I think what you propose is incredibly valuable, but I think in a slightly more depressing mode, the turn against institutional critique, the second wave, I think that signals the institution's weakness and the art world's weakness. That's the point at which, having confronted the fact that we are all replicating 
the values, the values of neoliberalism in, in that in that instance that we want to row out. Oh no, no, we've come too close to understanding that actually what we're doing might be counterproductive or toothless. And the art world, just like any other institution, re- is required to reinvent itself in order to render itself legitimate. Yeah, I just for some reason Derek Jarman immediately came to mind. Um <laughs> and how he was so not part of institutional critique during the mm. second wave and how geographically focused uh, the second wave was in New York and yeah. how um, he was kind of an independent person working during the AIDS crisis that was so incredibly enormously important, you know, critiquing the Thatcher government and their policies, but then also worked through such an incredibly highly commodified uh, style you know, in terms Mm. of painting later in his life um, when he wasn't able to make films anymore. Um, He was always a painter, but, you know, the black paintings that he made later in life, as well as some uh, word-based paintings where he's painting with his fingers or executing it through the bodies of other people are incredible. And I think Yeah, I mean, there's so many questions to open about his practice and how he fits in, but I think that there are also incredibly important figures and historical lessons that we can learn from people like Jarman who were never canonized. So this is also a bit the project of institutional uh, or after institutions. And the book is to, you know, think more expansively about the lessons that um, we needed to learn that haven't necessarily been written down um, in one place. Well, let's keep doing it. Thank you very much, Karen. Thank you so much. This was a nice conversation. After Institutions by Karen Archie is published by Floating Opera Press. I'm Pierre Dancer, and the other is Marshall Pope. Thanks for listening and join us next time. Thank you.